Episode 12, A Glass of Joe is a go. I'm PJ Glasser, joined by Joe Malfa. And Joe, we're three months into this thing now. <laughs> Here I was thinking that this week we'd talk right off the bat about Colin Morikawa, how I was all over that. My guy came through, wanted a little money. We will. We will. We will, but some, some bigger news happened. You have been asking and talking about this for months <laughs> now, and you finally got it. Lafreniere is headed to the Rangers. When you saw the ping pong ball have the Rangers logo on it, what went through your mind? PJ, I was sitting here going absolutely nuts, man. I mean, I was sitting here like actually nervous. Like they were, they were doing the ping pong balls one by one. And it was funny. If you noticed, uh, if, you, if you were watching it live, he, the, the Ernst and Young guy dropped the Rangers ball into the thing like when he was supposed to be displaying and he actually yeah, I was not watching so I tweeted it I was like oh this has got to be an omen this is a great sign ours was the only ball he accidentally dropped and then sure enough if you, you if you go back and if anybody watched it they had like a, a a kind of further out angle of the machine with the ping pong balls and the dude pressed the button and then they cut to like a, a camera that was kind of diagonally positioned and you could see just the way the ping pong ball was turned up in the top slot all you could see was the bottom red corner of the Rangers logo. And I saw that, and I lost my damn mind. <laughs> I mean, we've touched on it. When we had Joe Beninati on, we've talked about how well-positioned the Rangers are for success over the next decade. And it'd be a year or two before, you know, the real contention started. But this just this – is, this is insane. I mean, I, I don't know that people can truly – understand unless you're like a Rangers fan who is very intimately familiar with their farm system or you're just like a golf junkie, a golf I'm jumping the gun here. We're going to be talking golf soon. Unless you're a hockey junkie and just know teams, farm systems, they are absolutely loaded. And you're dropping in a guy who is touted in the same way that Sidney Crosby was and similar to the way that Connor McDavid was. And it was expected to come in and be a 60 to 70 point guy as a rookie. He's a franchise-changing player, and this team was already ready to take that jump with Capo Caco and the rest of the, the young guys. They were already ready for it, and this is just the massive cherry on top. Uh, it's, hockey is tough to predict, you know, I don't want to use this word. Out. I don't want to use this word dynasty because – in any given year, you have no clue who's going to win the Stanley Cup. You don't yeah. know before the season when you make, like we'll get to later, when you make your playoff brackets and you actually know the teams, you still don't know. Look at last year with the Lightning, set all these records, got swept by an eight seed in the first round. You don't know for the Stanley Cup in hockey. You just don't. Yeah. But you could predict contention. And starting next year, the Rangers are about to enter a decade where they will perennially be at the top of the Metro Division in the race for the president's trophy and Stanley cup contenders. And it, it was going to be a slower build. Now that immediately starts next year, immediately starts next year. And, I was and just... if, not, if not next year or next year, maybe they're just more playoff contenders the following year when they also have 15 million in cap space coming off the books because of Mark Stahl and Henrik Lundqvist. And I mean, it's just PJ. I just, Yesterday they showed the graphic. There's just so many. There's Lafreniere. So happy. There's I hope people Kaka. watch YouTube for these first like five minutes to I, see I just, just 
what a kid in the candy store. You I are. know they, they, they have, they got Capo Caco last year. This is great for him because now the spotlight is no longer on him. Caco was always a prospect who was going to need a year or two to marinate like Joe Thornton, Joe Thornton back then started real slow. He had like seven, 10 points, whatever it was in his first season needed to marinate slowly. Caco was the same way. People just put all these expectations on him because it's in New York and number two pick. So now Lafreniere completely takes the spotlight away, and now Caco can develop at his own pace into what he can become. And you got Phil Heedle. Uh, Vitaly Kravtsov hasn't even come here yet. Keandre Miller, Nils Lindquist. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. They are absolutely loaded. Next year, the, the Calder Trophy race for the Rookie of the Year is going to be between Lafreniere and then Igor Shosturkin in goal for the Rangers. It's, it's incredible. PJ, stop me now, otherwise I'll keep going. Um, I'll get to Marikawa because this is incredible. Well, I'm just going to add that I'm, I'm glad he didn't go to Pittsburgh. That was the last oh place God. because he was just – I mean, that was just ready to form itself, him taking over for Crosby and being and the next great one. And he played the same one. junior team that Crosby did. They oh. came from the same – they're coming from the same organization. So, thankfully, we don't have to deal with that. Look, the Caps and Rangers had their great playoff battles, so you guys are going to be great now. I'll probably end up hating you. <laughs> Although we might we – might, be at different inclines. We're kind of our windows closing. You guys are on the up, so we'll see what happens. But yeah, when I saw the when I saw the, the Rangers window. got the first pick, I'm like, I don't know what Joe Mouth is doing right now, but he is <laughs> one happy guy. Um, yeah, so, too, I shame. This is going to be a weird episode for anybody who watches on YouTube. We had to record our guests for this episode on Monday. We usually record everything on Wednesday. We tried to at least. Yeah. We had to record that on Monday. Um, so I still had a beard. My my, what was the Rangers playoff beard turned into an Alex Lafreniere beard and it hit. So I shaved. So, so that's it. So you shave, yeah, the caps start tomorrow. So I'll shave there mine tonight and get the playoff beards going. You mentioned more Wakawa. PGA championship was awesome. I joked with you that I'd watch 48 hours of golf. Joe, I probably <laughs> watched about 43, 44. I'm not going to lie to you. It was pretty incredible. And it was awesome. How many people now are going to fly across the country from all over the world to play TPC Harding because it's a municipal course and anybody can play it? I think that's what the coolest part was, is the fact that it's a course that anybody can play and you saw how much the pros struggled with it. Obviously, some of the par fives that regular people like us would play, they were converted to par fours for the professionals. But nonetheless, it was... It was incredible when that wind starts blowing and they get the marine layer and it gets foggy. I mean, it is, it is not easy. That was one of my big takeaways, too, was that it was a beautiful course. Yeah. And, I mean, when they showed the, the kind of transformation, of it, I, think, I think it was like 02, and the place was just like, still like a parking lot back then or whatever it was. Uh, I forgot if it was 02. It was, it was a was parking lot for when they had the U.S. Open. Yes, that's what it was. Olympic, like seven, eight 02? years ago. Uh, no, oh, no, it wasn't that not long. even Maybe like 2011, 10, something like that. Okay, there was something I saw. There was in, in the transformation package they showed. There was something from 02. There was something from the early 2010s. Um, it's it's gorgeous, absolutely yeah, gorgeous. So you, nice. you're gonna have a lot of people, like you said, fly in there and then being frustrated that they can't hit that drive on 16 like Morikawa did. That was absolutely picture perfect. He's Joe. I gotta tell you, the U.S. opens in like five or six weeks, but I might come right back with him. His game just. <laughs> It fits major championship golf. He hits fairways. He puts well. He hits the ball straight. He Very plays well at too. the rough, and he's calm. He's got composure. If you were watching the entire final round, his first hole, he had like a 18, 20-footer to save par, and he knocked it in. 
and I turn to my dad, and I'm like, he's going to win it. Because <laughs> golfers will tell you all the time when you're playing championship golf, it's not the birdies that win you, it's the par saves. They keep your round going to prevent those bogeys that might take your momentum away. And once he got that to avoid the bogey starting off, he was, he was great the rest of the way. But it's always funny in a major when you got – I mean, at one point, there were like seven dudes tied at 10 under. I was just going to say. And you're thinking, as, are we going to get this mega, mega playoff, which would have been wild. I was just going to say, as, as awesome as it was to see Morikawa take that tournament by the scruff of its neck down the last five or six holes, I was kind of disappointed because, like, <laughs> we had this whole – they dangled the carrot in front of us. Like, here is a six- or seven-man playoff that could get just totally bonkers. And then Morikawa is like, nah, I'm a hole out on this one. I'm going to hit a perfect drive on 16 and eagle, and I'm going to take this thing myself. Um, but that was – it was really, really great golf all weekend. Um, the leaderboard was bunched up the whole way. You know, your guy won it, my guy and Kepka. In the same way that you were saying, you know, the par saves from Morikawa, that's why I was so confident on him heading into Sunday because if you watch his round on Saturday um, – on the front nine, he had like three or four incredible par saves. Mm-hmm. And then he birdied a couple on the back nine. So I was like, all right. He had his great day on Thursday. He, he treaded water on Friday. On Saturday, he had a bunch of great par saves, followed by a few nice birdies. So everything was positioning for Brooksy to make his, you know, Sunday minus five, minus six, uh, you know, championship push. But just never just got totally it going. lost it. Yeah. Totally lost it. Finished like, I think it was plus three or four on Sunday and just totally lost it. Well, on Saturday, in between his round, you could see, I mean, there were three or four different times where he was getting the legs stretched out and everything. Yeah. You just don't know over the course of the week how that affected him. Um, and we'll preview the Wyndham Championship coming up a little later on. But as you mentioned, we just talked Lafreniere and the Rangers. The NHL playoffs start today as we record this on Tuesday. And we made it, Joe. Stanley Cup playoffs. Here we go. The qualifying round did not disappoint. Plenty of upsets. I mean, if you want to call it, both 12 seeds beat the five seeds. I think we didn't get March Madness. So maybe that was the sporting God's way of giving us a little 12-5 magic. So we'll run through briefly all of these matchups, who we like, and then our picks for the bracket. Again, we still don't really know how the entire bracket will play itself out because it yeah, round goes by. They'll have the reseeding with the higher and lower seeds. So we'll start with the West Coast. We both love Vegas a lot. They're playing Chicago. Not many people thought Chicago would beat Edmonton. Joe, do you think that they beat the Golden Knights? So I think the, a theme you're going to see in the first round of the actual playoffs, again, they're technically – calling the other thing, the qualifiers. It's not the playoffs. This is the playoffs now. Right. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of the teams who pulled off the upsets in the qualifiers. Like, that, that was it. That was, their, that was their big push. They made their splash. Uh, the, the Blackhawks upset the Oilers. Uh, the, the Canadians upset the Penguins. They had their – they put everything into that, and now they're here, and now – they get to run into a couple buzzsaws. Um, I don't think the Blackhawks really match up well with Vegas. I Vegas is they were and still are my pick to make the Cup final from the Western Conference. I think you're going to see a theme of the the teams who pulled off significant upsets in the qualifiers 
they are going to get swept or gentleman sweep in the first round. So four or five games. I've got this one as a gentleman sweep, Vegas in five. I think Vegas is just too much. I'm with you. They, you know, I think the thing that the Blackhawks had over Edmonton was their playoff experience. And yep. I really think that showed. And, and Vegas, Oilers defense is just horrendous. Like all year it was horrendous. It was just because Dreisaitl and McDavid were just going nuts that they right. were in the position they were. But they had uh, in game three, they collapsed a 3-2 lead in the last couple of minutes. They got sh- destroyed in the first game. Uh, their defense just didn't hold up. They had to go from uh, – they had to change their goaltenders. Just They have always had problems with the back. And a, a veteran-laden team like the Blackhawks with Taves and Kane just exploited it. And Vegas, I mean, you talk about playoff experience. In their first year as a franchise, they made the cup. In their second year, if it wasn't for an all-time meltdown, they would have – Yes, gotten past an all-time meltdown because of a horrible penalty call. Horrible. And if, you know, if they win that game, who knows what they do. And then here they are in their seeding games and they get the one seed. So, I mean, they're they're clearly the better team. They have the experience. They check off all the boxes. I'm with you. I can't see this going more than five games, maybe six games. But I, I just think Vegas is the better team. Colorado and Arizona. Who do you yeah, like? This one's not even the gentleman sweep. This one's just a true break out the brooms. Uh, I think Arizona, they're the seven. Chicago's the eight. Um, in the previous round, Arizona was the 11. Chicago was the 12. But I thought Chicago was a much better team than Arizona. Arizona was just kind of happy to be there. The Predators, um, they, were, they turned out to be an, a god-awful mess in the qualifying round, especially – uh, with them trying to figure out their goaltending issues. So um, Arizona is just a, a very de- smart defensive team that picked their moments offensively. If you watched any of that Predators-Coyote series, uh, every game you watched, you saw it was like first period, 14-1 to 1 in shots, 29-12 uh, to 12 in the, by the time the second period was over. The Predators were outplaying Arizona, but they got great goaltending from Darcy Kemper, playing really good defense, kind of just clinging on dear life and then capitalizing when they were able to and it worked because the Predators just aren't a really well-constructed team anymore not the team that uh that made it to the cup final very recently so uh, on the flip side of that Colorado and Vegas are head and shoulders above the rest of the Western Conference Colorado might be the best team top to bottom in the Western Conference and they're just so fast and they got Nathan McKinnon leading the way and they're healthier than they were now uh, sorry they're healthier now than they were during the regular season this one's four games written all over it. Joe, every year in the Stanley Cup playoffs, there's an upset that nobody sees coming. And this is uh, going to be that upset. I like the Coyotes. We could not have had two more different takes on this. I have a sweep. <laughs> I have a sweep, and you got an upset. I got Arizona in six games. I couldn't tell you more than three players on the Coyotes. They very well <laughs> could get swept. Uh, but, you know, I mean, why not? Every year in the Stanley Cup playoffs, there's an upset nobody sees coming. And I just went through the bracket and. You know, in the East, I think in all of those series, really anybody can win, maybe except Montreal over Philly would be the big upset. So I go to the West, and I'm like, you know, Vegas and Colorado are so clearly the better teams on paper. So we'll see what happens. I'm, I'm okay. thinking the Coyotes win. They probably won't, but we'll see now, what happens. I have my upset, my main first-round upset in the next Western Conference series, Calgary-Dallas. I didn't like the way Dallas looked through their – uh, round robin games again it's a small sample size of only three games but I wasn't too high on Dallas throughout the regular season Calgary I was higher on throughout the regular season 
their offense is just clicking on all cylinders, lights out. Manjapane has been tremendous offensively. Their power play, unstoppable. They were able to capitalize on a Jets team that was missing Patrick Laine and, and they were missing Shifley and uh, they, were, they were missing their players. They're, they're big guns. If they were in the series, it would have been a different series. Uh, but Calgary looked really good. I didn't like the way that Dallas looked. I think Calgary matches up well offensively with Dallas. Uh, the goaltending is something to watch for Dallas. They, their goaltending is better than Calgary's. Uh, do you trust Cam Talbot? I, being a former Rangers player, I got to see him a lot. I followed him wherever he's gone since then. It's a question mark, but I think they're a team that has the capabilities of just outscoring their troubles, sort of like the Oilers did. Um, and we saw that that didn't end up well for the Oilers. Uh, but I think overall, Calgary's a more sound team than Edmonton, even though they don't have the same offensive prowess. So their offense, again, is tremendous right now. Seven-game series, toss-up. But I give Calgary the six seed, the slight edge, and I got them in seven. I got Dallas. They were in the Western Conference Final last year. Um, you know, you talk about Calgary's offense. Dallas's offense is loaded to Ben Sagan, and they got they can put up a, a lot of goals. I think it'll be a fun series. I think it goes seven games. Calgary, I just didn't see that killer instinct against Winnipeg. I know they won in four games, but once Line A and Shifley went down, they lost that game too, and that told me a lot. They really could have put the stranglehold on Winnipeg and could have knocked him out in three games. Instead, they kept him around. They ended up finishing off in four. But I think Dallas, being all that experience they got from last year, being the better team on paper, I think they take down the Flames. And that brings us to our last matchup in the Western Conference, the defending cup champion St. Louis Blues versus the Canucks in the 4-5. Who you got? Uh, cup hangovers are real. You saw it last year with the Hurricanes and the Capitals. And I, I – did again like the way Vancouver looked in their opening series. St. Louis looked a little sluggish. Uh, they had a great regular season again. They they followed up on what they did last year in the postseason, similar to how the Caps had a great regular season following their cup win. But it's just something about, you know, winning the cup, having a hangover the next year. Um, Vancouver is a young, hungry team that kind of wants to make a name for themselves, kind of sort of this year's version of what the Hurricanes were last year. Um, I don't have them getting any further than Vegas in the second round, but I have them pulling the six-game upset. And, it, it, look, it's 5-4, it's but it is a more significant upset than the traditional 5-4 because St. Louis was higher in the standings. They came in fourth because of the round robin. Um, so it's, it's a decent-sized upset here. Uh, again, remind me a lot about the Hurricanes from last year. Uh, good goaltending, good offensive pieces, Elias Pettersson, and, and defensively with, with Quinn Hughes, they've got a lot of talent and uh, make their statement like the, like the Hurricanes. Cup hangover was all I was going to say, why I like the Canucks as well. Plus, when we had Joe Beninati on, he told us how much he liked Vancouver, and they looked apart against Minnesota in their uh, qualifying round. So I like the Canucks too. The Blues, you know, they had an incredible season last year winning the Cup. They had a great regular season this year. But much like the Bruins, I think just the, the restart, they just have not looked like the same team. While Vancouver has looked good off the uh, restart, and I think they get the win in the series as well. So we agree on two of the four in yep. those series. We head to the East now, and I have a feeling we'll be agreeing on – Probably all four of them. Uh, Philly we'll over Montreal. You got 
Philly. Four Arizona. games. Yeah. Four games. That's it. That was those are the two. Uh, Colorado over Arizona, and then Philly over Montreal. Four games. Elaine Vigneault, uh, I as much as it pains me to say it, uh, I after he left the Rangers, like I, I I wasn't too fond of him and his time with the Rangers, um, and I didn't think that he was a good hire for the Flyers in the position they were in as a franchise. But it's clicking. Uh, Turier is playing tremendous hockey right now, and all around they have a, a, a team that doesn't get the credit they deserve. Montreal, same thing. They they kind of had a lot of bulleted board material against the Penguins. Um, they had a good game plan for the Penguins. They came out and did it. They won't do it again. I agree. Philly Philly's just playing a different brand of hockey sweep right Sweep for now. you too, or, or Montreal? I got, I got gentlemen sweep. I think I okay. think Montreal takes one game. I think Carey Price gets them one game. But Philly, I mean, they look dominant against the Bruins. Oh, yeah. I mean, it Ran through the round robin. Just breeze through it. So I'm with you. I think they beat Montreal. Joe, to me, this matchup, Tampa Bay and Columbus, I mean, this one, is going to be a <laughs> lot of fun. It all, again, we keep talking about Tampa and UMBC and the similarities. And it's here crazy. you go. Virginia was the one seed the year after they lost to NBC. They got uh, to UMBC. They got their revenge. And here's Tampa yet again. That's it. Just with after all, they got swept, they get Columbus again. With all the other things going on. Lottery, Lafreniere, an exciting qualifying round that just ended on Sunday. Everybody piling on the Maple Leafs for, for blowing it. Uh, it flew very much under the radar that we have a rematch in the first round yes. of the Lightning and the Blue Jackets. And like we've both been saying all along, revenge tour for Tampa. I've got it in five games. As pesky and dangerous as the Blue Jackets are, they were outplayed for much of the series against Toronto, I thought, watching all five games. Uh, and it was funny. I wish I – sometimes, you know, you, you say something, you're talking to somebody, you wish you tweeted it just so you could have looked smart. When they were ha- in that overtime game uh, that uh, Dubois ended up scoring the goal to, to complete his hat trick and, and beat the Leafs in overtime. Yeah. I was sitting there saying to myself, texting one of my friends, this game 100% has awkward turnover at the blue line from the Maple Leafs, turns into breakaway, turns into goal written all over it for the Blue Jackets. And that's what, they, that's what happened. They were just sitting back, waiting for their moment, poked one away at the blue line, breakaway, goal, game over. So they, similar to what the Coyotes did in their series against the Predators, the Blues were very – they played great defense. They were very opportunistic offensively. Um, and they were going against a Maple Leafs team that wants to be like the Lightning, the way they're constructed but they're nowhere near as good as the Lightning. No. So the Blue Jackets can have a similar game plan to what they did in the qualifying round, same game plan that they had last year, but they no longer have Bobrovsky. They no longer have Artemi Panarin. They've got no shot. I shouldn't say no shot. It's a John Tortorella coach playoff team, but they don't have a great shot at beating Tampa this time. I've got five games, Tampa. All year, all off season, this is what Tampa has been thinking about. I mean, they're one of those teams that they don't really look at the regular season. They're judged on what they do in the postseason. And you have to think that all those guys were hoping that they got a shot mm-hmm. at Columbus to undo what happened last year. They get their chance. And, Joe, if, if Columbus beats them this time around, you know, I think Jonathan Cooper gets fired. I think yeah. maybe they could blow that thing up because – this is I what they blow it. I don't think they'll blow it up just because they're too talented and it makes no damn sense. Um, you just need to get the right coach in place and, and hope that it, 
improves the situation. I mean, you look at last year with the Blues, like they were in last place in January. Sure, they got a couple players back from injury as well once the calendar turned to February, but you put in a new coach, look what happened. You look at Philly, they insert Elaine Vigneault, look what happened. Um, coaching is so crucial in hockey. And I think if they were to go down again, they'll just try to pluck a, a coach that's maybe more suited for postseason hockey and has that postseason experience, like a, like a Laviolette, who, guys like that who have cut their teeth in the postseason in the past and have done it. I don't think they'll blow up the players. There's too much talent. Find the right coach. Get some luck with your, your playoff matchups. Avoid Columbus, and they'll be fine. Seriously. But I don't think, it's, I don't think they're going to lose. That's a, that, yeah, that's a fair point with the coaching. But I, I do think Tampa, um, I think they beat Columbus. I think they get their revenge and they move on. Another great matchup is Love this matchup. Washington and New York. Trots versus old team who we won the Stanley Cup with. Joe, you know, I got to say, I think the series goes seven. It's the Caps in the playoffs, so it'll never be easy. Yes. They didn't have John Carlson for any of their three uh, round-robin games, which was huge. I mean, they absolutely missed him, especially on the power play. It hurts that they don't have Sam Sonoff as well backing up Holpe because if Holpe isn't great, they really can't turn to anybody else who they trust. I mean, they really exactly. got to stick with him the whole way. New York, their defense is so good. Trotz has had great – And they're so fast up top. Oh, Barzell is a bullet. They, uh, you know, Trotz has had great success the past two years in the postseason. Nobody knows the Caps better than he does. On the flip side, nobody knows Trotz better than the Caps do. Reardon, I mean, that was his right-hand man for the the Mm -hmm. championship run, and now he's coaching the Caps. It'll be a great series. Maybe part of me is being biased. I absolutely could see the Islanders pulling the upset just because it's the Caps and they're good enough to do it. But I do think the Caps win it in seven games. I've got Caps in six. They, ever since Trotz has been with the Islanders, they have had eight regular season matchups. They've split them down the middle four to four. And it was within each season, two to two in each season. Mm. Um, so they've been about as even as you can get. Yep. And like you said, Trotz knows them. They know Trotz. Reardon knows Trotz. Trotz knows Reardon. It's as close of a matchup as you could get their styles, the way they kind of clash. Um, I go with the Capitals just because I'm not picking against Ovechkin in the first round, although it didn't work out last year. Um, as much as this Islanders team looks promising, I'm not trusting them quite yet. Uh, they looked really good against the Panthers, but the Panthers played such disinterested hockey. So uh, they, they looked like a team who wanted to be in the Lafreniere sweepstakes and, you know, they didn't get it. We right. did. So, um, but, uh, but I go with the <laughs> wink, Caps. Wink. <laughs> yeah. they, uh, so I said I thought we'd go four for four on our East picks because of how we were talking about this team last week. And we said it was imperative for the Caps and the Bruins to win that last game against each other so they didn't face Carolina. The Bruins, who were the best team in hockey all year, the best team in the East all year, go 0 for 3. They get stuck with maybe the hottest team right now going in to the Stanley Cup playoffs. And, Joe, I'm rolling with Carolina. I love what I saw last season in the playoffs. I love what I saw against their series in the Rangers. And Boston just doesn't look like the same team. And Carolina looks fantastic right now. And I think they take down the Bruins in six games. Agreed. I got the same thing. I got Canes in six. We talked about – I mentioned the Panthers look disinterested. The Bruins look totally disinterested. They look like a team that was – 
pissed that they didn't just get the president's trophy number one seed. They didn't want to be there in the round robin. And I don't see how they're going to turn it on now against uh, a team that is slowly becoming uh, quietly a little juggernaut in the East. Mm -hmm. They've got a ways to go to become, you know, a perennial top seed. They're still a fifth seed, but they look tremendous against the Rangers. Sebastian Ajo is playing incredible hockey right now. Andrei Svechnikov playing even better hockey right now. Uh, the question for them is in net. Morozik looked really good. Oh, Reimer came in uh, on the back-to-back for game three because they had a back-to-back in game two and game three, and Reimer came in and looked really good too. Uh, Brendan Moore is slowly proving to be a tremendous playoff coach. You mentioned last week that it's kind of like a little bit like Mike Vrabel uh, for the NFL comparison. Uh, I think they have everything kind of going in their favor right now. I have a hard time picking against them, so I won't. So I go Carolina. So, and real quick, we'll just breeze through the rest of our uh, matchups and picks. Especially because it's, most of it's probably going to be wrong anyway. So, we'll just That's breeze exactly through right. it. So, we'll <laughs> stick with the East. We got we both have Philly versus Carolina and Tampa versus Washington. I know we both like Tampa over Washington. Who do you have in Philly, Carolina? I got Carolina. I think Carolina Same. still goes up against them and plays well. And the reason that I didn't like Elaine Vigneault for the Rangers is because he faded away in the playoffs. So, he'll get past the Canadians. He'll lose to the Hurricanes. And then I've got Tampa over Carolina and Tampa in the finals. I think we agree on that too. We're both right in Tampa. So yep. that makes it nice and easy. And then over in the West, um, I've got, we have different matchups here yes, because we do. the seeding, the reseeding changes things. So I have Vegas, Vancouver. I've got Vegas through that. And then I've got Colorado, uh, Colorado, Calgary. And I have uh, Calgary through that. I'm sorry, Colorado through that. Colorado through that. Okay. And then you have Vegas over Calgary. Yes. And yes. to get to the Stanley Cup. So, right, I have different seating. I have Vegas playing Arizona, and I have Vancouver playing Dallas. And I'm riding with Vancouver. I think they beat St. Louis. I think they beat Dallas. They get to the conference final against Vegas, who beats Arizona. And then, just like you've been talking about, we both like Vegas and Tampa. There was nothing I didn't see from Vegas in the first three games that swayed me off of picking them to get to the final. And Tampa is on paper the best, most talented team in hockey. So both of us have Tampa and Vegas, which means they'll probably lose in the first round. Yep. That's exactly. how that goes. But we have a great guest coming up, Scott Garceau, who's calling the Orioles game this season for Gary Thorne. Done a tremendous job. He's been a sportscaster in Baltimore for 40 years. He joins us next to talk O's, Ravens, baseball, football, and a little bit of everything coming up. Pleased to be joined this week by Baltimore sportscaster and Orioles TV play-by-play announcer, Scott Garceau. Scott, how's everything going? How are you navigating this crazy world we're living in in 2020? It's been a little wild. We're at crazy tarps and COVID delays and rain delays. And uh, I guess we could expect anything in this 2020 season. And we've seen a lot of it so far. That's for sure. Yeah, we're glad we get the chance to talk to you during one of the O's off days. But what has it been like? broadcasting games on TV for the O's in an empty stadium? And, and, and how's that whole vibe kind of been? Yeah, the, the, uh, the no fans is tough because you ride the emotion of the fans, even if you're on the road. Um, it's just the way baseball and sports are supposed to be played, right? The fans are a big part of it. So that, that part is weird. The game between the lines is still the game that I love and I'm, I'm sure you guys love. So once they start playing – it's baseball as we know it, right? Guys are playing hard and pitchers are trying to get hitters out and hitters are trying to knock it out of the ballpark. So all that, 
all that part is fine. But I do miss the fans. Uh, also doing remote games. So yesterday, you know, we're doing the game at Camden Yards, and they're playing down at Nationals Park in the same way in the opening series at Fenway Park. So that is a little different, but it's actually a little easier than I thought it would be. Uh, you know, they provide us with a lot of different looks of the game. We, we have the we have the same video screen that you're seeing at home, but then we have several other monitors where we have a monitor in each bullpen so we can see if anybody's up. We have a fixed monitor on the scoreboard at all times so we can see what's happening up there. And then we have a high home camera that kind of shows us the home field and a center field camera. So oh, nice. they, they really, you know, they, for not being there, they give you a lot of looks to give you a chance to call the game at least. That's awesome. And as for the team itself, we know the Orioles are definitely in a rebuilding transition, but how fun has it been to see this team have some success? They swept a really good Tampa Bay team. They took the first two against the defending champion Nationals. So how good has it been for you being around the team to see these young guys have some success? It's been a lot of fun because I think it's unexpected, right? They lost over 100 games. We, we threw a graphic up there yesterday, the three teams – three worst teams in baseball last year. The Tigers were the worst, right? And then the Orioles and Marlins were right there, all with over 100 losses. All those teams have winning records now. The Orioles are 500, but I think I think we kind of feel like maybe they're eight and seven yeah. if they can complete that Nats game that we saw yesterday. I, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a bunch of guys that know how to swing the bat, right? Uh, Hanser Alberto's real, right? I mean, he hit yeah. over 300 last year. I think it was the first Orioles since Nick Marcakis. And he's hitting about 333 now and smoking the ball. He is fun to watch. I think Hayes and Santander could be part of the present and the future. Both of those guys, I think, have a chance to be everyday big league players. So we're seeing some glimpses. We, we know it's still probably two, three years away until the Rutschmans and these recent draft picks, some of the international players are starting to get after get here. But these guys are fun to watch. And – uh, Tommy Malone and Wade LeBlanc, kind of veteran guys that just kind of placeholders for now. They they pitched well. They pitched well and given them a chance to win. So uh, John Means adding about three, four miles an hour to his fastball. Yeah, He's going to be interesting. Obviously, he's away now because he lost his dad. But, um, it, yeah, it's fun. They've been, other than opening day when the Red Sox hammered them, they've pretty much been competitive in every game. And as a fan – that's what I want to see. I want, my, I want to see my team playing hard, being in games, and hopefully winning some. And, and they're doing that right now. Scott, it's always nice when we have a media guy on because you always kind of jump the gun and lead us into what our next question was going to be. Uh, as you were answering that question, I was thinking ahead, and, and my next question was going to be, we saw where this team was four to eight years ago in that kind of contention span. Um, now, with all the guys you mentioned, with Adley Rutschman and the expectations around him, how far do you think this team is from getting back into another contention window? Yeah, I, my, my hunch just off the top of my head is two to three years. I, I think three might be safer than two, but um, it, it's the Grayson Rodriguez's and the D.L. Halls. We, we can see more talent coming into the pipeline. I believe in Michael Elias's plan, and, and we'll see in three or four years – how well they executed. But I think you have to load up your minor, minor league system with players. And the Orioles got away from international signings for a long time. Why? I don't know. But look around at rosters. I think I looked at the All-Star game last year, and nearly 50% of the players on the All-Star team weren't U.S. players. They were from the Dominican. They were from Venezuela. 
And the Orioles overlooked that for quite a, quite a while. They're not overlooking it now. And, and that stuff, that international stuff's probably not going to pay off for three to five years at least because you're signing 16 and 17-year-olds uh, on that level. But I think the blueprint is right. Uh, I think, you know, the Rutschmans and uh, Heston Kerstad this year, those guys aren't that far away. They could be two to three years. And then if you get the starting pitching, if Grayson Rodriguez is the real deal, and he certainly looks like it now, he's probably two years out. D.L. Hall might be a year and a half out. When those guys arrive, if they can be top of the rotation, ones, twos, and threes, now you really get a chance. Now, more specifically about Rutschman, just what's kind of the buzz around the franchise about him? I know just such a highly touted prospect. Everybody was so excited to get him in the fold. Um, you mentioned how far you think – they are away and he is away, but just how excited are they to get him in the MLB uniform, whether it's this year or next year and, and just seeing him take off. Yeah. I think they think every, everything's on schedule. Uh, we talked to Michael Elias about a week ago about the report, the reports down at, at Bowie and they're seeing what they thought they drafted defensively swinging the bat. Everything is on schedule. He just, he, he just needs some work. He, he if they brought him up here today, and said, you're our everyday catcher. I'm not sure he would fail, but it's probably not the way to go. I, I, th I think we're looking realistically at sometime next year. I don't know if that's, if they play 162, if that's mid-season, it's in the second half of the season, uh, if it's opening day the following year. But I, I think that's the window that maybe sometime second half next year, or certainly by what would be the 2022 season, he's going to be ready to go. Uh, advanced college player. They love the way he handles himself behind the plate. So, so now he's got to learn how to handle a, a, a major league pitching staff, calling the game. There's a lot that goes into being a catcher versus a first baseman or an outfielder. And I think he's working hard to get better in all those areas. But uh, they, they love him. They, they haven't seen anything that, that's disappointing them so far. And, and they're really encouraged by what they're seeing. Love to hear that. I wanted to ask yeah. you now about baseball as a whole. Do you think the MLB, do you think they regret not going to a bubble, seeing the success that the NBA, the NHL have, has had at limiting cases? Are you optimistic that the MLB will be able to finish the season? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a crapshoot, right? Because we, we look great today and tomorrow we could have, you know, three teams infected with right. 15 players. I mean, the Marlins and the Cardinals have been the teams, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the Marlins, they should be – they should be trickling back in there, and they did a pretty good job coming into Baltimore and sweeping the Orioles. And like three days ago, we looked and they had the best record in the major leagues. Yeah. Um, I think it's tough with baseball. I'm not sure how you put 30 teams in a bubble and play and get them away from families and house them. And uh, it's 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 a lot a lot logistically now. If they decided to do something like that in the playoffs, maybe I, I might understand that. Uh, so far. 28 teams are testing totally negative. Uh, I, I take a COVID test every, I, I check, I got to be checked every day before I go into the stadium, my temperature. Baseball, I think, has done a good job with the protocols. The Orioles have gone over and above what Major League Baseball has asked. Major League Baseball didn't ask to check the media, but I just took another COVID test two days ago, and the Orioles are checking media members every seven to 10 days with a COVID test, and every day, we take our temperature at home before we get to the ballpark. When we get to the ballpark, they take our temperature again. So, and everybody has separate entrances. I, I, I'm, I'm tier three, which means the top level of the press where the broadcast is. Tier two is the regular press box. You don't park in the same area. You don't enter the stadium in the same area. They've really good, done a good job 
of separating even the players when they work out. Sometimes they come in at different times to stagger them so they don't have the whole team together at one point. So I think they're doing all the right stuff. It just takes a knucklehead or two to be running out in the bars and clubs and bringing it back. And I, I just saw the story about Act from Cleveland. He yeah. went out with a bunch of buddies and uh, the Indians found out about it and they sent him home. So uh, good move on their part. Mm-hmm. I think baseball is doing all the right stuff. 28 teams, totally negative on the testing. But, uh, you know, the Cardinals and Marlins have had an issue. Hopefully they can get them back on the field quick. It's a great point. Wanted to transition over to the Ravens now. And I can't ever remember, Scott, when expectations have been this high for the Ravens. If they do end up having a football season, do you think this is their year? I mean, do you think they'll live up to all the off-season hype surrounding them? Yeah, I mean, they, they certainly it, – it's there on paper, right? They've, they've got the league's unanimous MVP. Uh, they do have quite a f- few new pieces moving around on the defense, but Calais Campbell was a great ad. Derek Wolf. Uh, I guess Vegas has them winning all 16 games. They have them going 16-0. and 0. If, if yeah, you look at every, every Vegas game, they are the favorite, even against the Chiefs. I guess that game's in Baltimore, right? So maybe mm-hmm. home field gives them a, a slight edge. Now, do we think they're going to be 16-0? and 0? Of course not. Uh, you know, 14-2 and 2 could turn to 12-4, and 4, and that could still be a Super Bowl championship team. So I think the pieces are there. We have to see. It's, it's, it's such a crazy year. Do, do rookies have impact this year without a preseason and a normal training camp? Or are those guys going to be behind? Ravens are looking for some of those uh, rookies to help on defense, uh, Queen and some of the other guys. So I don't think anything's a lead pipe cinch. But when I look at the NFL this year, I got to look at the Chiefs and Ravens and say, if I'm picking two teams to get to the Super Bowl, I like those two teams. Hard to pick against those two. And before I ask my uh, Ravens question, I had one more baseball-related one for you. All the different uh, rule changes and quirks that we've seen this year. It's not a normal year, period. It's not a normal year. Um, Are there any that you really like that you could see sticking, like the – whether it's the seven-inning doubleheaders, whether it's the men on base uh, to start extra innings. Um, do you see anything sticking going forward? I, I'm an old traditionalist, right? So I don't like new, whether in my life or in my sports. Um, I think the universal DH is staying. And, and I, I, I've been for that for a long time. And it was like, I like the DH. I, I don't get excited to see a pitcher who was hitting 74 come to the plate and sw- swing and miss two times and take called strike three. I don't think that's exciting for a game that probably needs more excitement. So I like the universal DH. Um, the, the runner on second against that one, but after seeing it, what, what I'd kind of like, I know they're trying to save bullpens and stuff, and, and I get that. How, how about we play real baseball for like 10 or 11 innings, and after the 11th, if nobody scores, then you throw a runner on 100%. Second. That's, what I, yeah. that's what I've been saying, yeah. too. Do it at like the 12th or something. Yeah, what, what's the other thing you mentioned? There, there's a um, – we, we uh, got... The three-pitcher three minimum, the seven yeah, ball headers. Yeah, three-pitcher minimum's kind of weird to me, uh, but I, I'm, I'm okay if they want to do that. I don't, I don't know how that's changing the game and helping things up that much. And then uh, the seven-inning double headers, I think it's good this year. I don't know. I, I don't know if there's a future in that, but uh, when I'm calling games, I guess, and there's a double header, I don't mind that there's seven innings. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Instead of spending 12 hours at the ballpark, it's only 10. There you go. Now, you've been a sportscaster for four decades in that city. Have you ever seen uh, the, the fans in that area gravitate as quickly to a player as they gravitated towards Lamar Jackson last year? 
No, it's pretty incredible. Uh, I remember when Joe got here that first first year or two and they were going to the playoffs and he was playing well and they were winning games and it was wacko for Flacco because trust me at that point the Ravens had some good teams they had a Super Bowl team but they never had any quarterbacks really yeah. Vinny came in in 96 and 97 Vinny had a real good year in 96 he was among the league leaders and they threw the ball all over the lot great passing game 2,000 yard receivers that year and Michael Jackson and uh oh I'm drawing a blank kid I think he played at Michigan anyway their offense was great that year, but they couldn't stop anybody, right? Ray was a rookie in 96, and they were giving up 30-some points a game. They couldn't stop anybody. So then they went through all those transition years where Jim Harbaugh and 20 other guys, Stoney Case, and go down the list, uh, played quarterback, and they, they didn't have any stability at the position. Even when McNair got here, he was pretty good the first year, but his shoulder was hurting by then, and he couldn't throw the ball down the field, so he wasn't the same Steve McNair that we saw with the Titans. So when Joe came in, it was like, hey, we, we got a quarterback, right? And they did. Joe, Joe had a good run in this town. But he wasn't a unanimous league MVP. And Lamar just plays the game with so much passion. And he, he, has, he has a skill set that nobody else in the league can match. I mean, there might be guys that throw the ball better. And I'm not saying he's better than Patrick Mahomes, who's pretty special and can throw it all over the lot. But Lamar works hard at his craft. I think he's going to get better and better in the passing game. And if he can stay healthy and on the field, man, look out, look out. Scott, last question for you before we get into our two final segments we like to do with all our guests. And I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. My dad and I talk about this all the time. But if you had to rank these four guys of the most beloved Baltimore athletes from one to four, Brooks Robinson, Ray Lewis, Cal Ripken, Johnny Unitas, how would you rank get out them? of here? That's not fair. Get out of here. <laughs> let me let me talk a little bit about both. Sure. So so John Unitas was the Babe Ruth of of football. Mm -hmm. He he was. You have to remember that in the early fifties, college football was king, and the NFL was kind of in the background. And then came John, and we hear about the greatest game ever played, which was, wasn't the greatest game ever played. It might have been the most important game ever played, but the play was okay, but it wasn't the greatest game ever played. But John in that game against New York in that market, in the over, first overtime game in NFL history, and all that he was to the game, he was the Babe Ruth of the National Football League. And he was the greatest quarterback of that era. And we can argue, is was he better than Brady or, or this guy or Montana? And those are all good arguments. But John was that guy. Brooks was probably more popular in this town than even John was, who was a great guy and involved in the community. And you'd see John in church, in the grocery store, and everywhere else. And you'd see Brooks too. But Brooks would show up at your Cub Scout event, at your Girl Scout event, at any event because Brooks never said no to anybody. And he, he was just such a great guy and he touched so many people and it still is in our town that everybody that's ever been around Brooks loves the guy. John was quieter. John was the guy in the room that nobody would know he was in there, but he would have three guys over the corner and be entertaining them and with stories. But the spotlight, John never got who he was. We all got who he was. That's John Unitas, one of the greatest players ever. John just thought he was another guy like the rest of us and that was part of what made him so good but Brooks Brooks just has a spirit in him that's phenomenal I traveled with him I guess six seven years doing Oriole games never saw him have, have a bad day never saw him get quick or snap with a fan who wanted an autograph or a picture 
every fan that went up to Brooks and said hello walked away feeling better about himself because that's what Brooks did to people. We, we were in the airport in Texas one day walking to our flight and somebody stopped them. It was like a family and they did pictures or an autograph or something. And we started walking. I said, Brooks, I said, you know what a collector's item is? He said, what's that, Scotty? He looked at me kind of quizzical. I said, that's a, that's a baseball that you haven't signed. I said, because I've never seen you turn anybody down. So, and Brooks had 16 gold gloves. It was a league MVP and a World Series MVP. So he, 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 I, in my mind, he's the greatest third baseman ever. There might have been guys that played the position that hit better. But he, he, with the glove, was the greatest third baseman that ever played the game. Now we get into Ray. And Ray's in the conversation of one of the greatest to ever play defense. First ballot Hall of Famer. Played on one of the greatest defenses in the history of the game in the 2000 Ravens and had a spirit about him that was just different than anybody else, a passion for the game, a passion for his team. Uh, ben Roethlisberger, right, all those battles with the Steelers. I talked to Ben when I was doing some research to present Ray for the Hall of Fame, and Ben told me the story. He said, oh, we had some battles. And he said, that son of a gun, oh, this was Peyton Manning, said, that son of a gun, he said, I, I got all the respect in the world for Ray. He said, we had a code for our, for our snap counts. He said, when we played the Ravens, we had a code for the code because Ray knew everything. He said, I would come out of the huddle sometimes, be walking the team to the line of scrimmage, and Ray would be calling out the play we were going to run to his defense. He said, I don't know how he did it. I know he studied, but he picked up on everything. And Ben talked with me about he said, I had so much respect for him, and I hope he had as much respect for me. I think he did respect me. He said, but every time we played the Ravens, when we lined up for the national anthem, we'd look across the field at each other, make eye contact, and both tap our hearts like, here we go. We're going to battle, but I love you, I respect you, and let's give it all we got. And so that's the kind of respect Ray had around the league, and he's one of the greatest I've ever seen. The speed. Even in the end, when he lost some of that, he still had the will and the knowledge to be a difference maker. But that last Super Bowl run, Ray wasn't the player he once was. He had trouble in coverage at that point, but he knew so much about the game and he had so much passion and the will to win. Uh, I think any of us in this town, you have to remember too, that Ray connected to a city, inner city people that needed a hero Ray Lewis was that guy, and Ray reached out to them, and they reached out to him. So there was a bond there that was pretty special, and that's why his statues at M&T Bank Stadium. Yeah, you talked about that. Who was the fourth? Who was the fourth uh, guy? Ripken. Ripken. Oh, Cal. Uh, obviously, the Iron Man. Uh, you know, the example there. Who, who were we talking about? A baseball player the other day. Uh, I think it was Starling Castro who played all, all 162 games last year, and we were saying, you know, three or four guys in the league did it in, in the entire. And Cal did that year in, year out, year in. And by the way, he was a pretty good player too, two-time MVP, all-star MVP. And he just, he just represented, I think, you say Baltimore is a blue-collar town, right? That was our football team, the Colts, the Ravens, blue-collar, tough guys. Who epitomized that more than Cal, who showed up every day? It didn't feel good every day. There's some days when Randy Johnson or somebody like that's thrown, he could have used a day off, never took that day off. Yep. Somebody was telling me about Rafael Palmero. They said, look at, look at his playing record. If he played 158 games or 159, and he usually played, that meant he, he went against Randy Johnson three times because he didn't hide it. He'd tell his teammates, oh, no, if he pitches, I don't play. I don't go against that guy. That guy scares me. I don't play. So 
If he missed four games, it was four times that Randy Johnson pitched against his team. <laughs> Cal never took that day off. Right. Cal never took – no matter who was on the mound, Clemens, Randy Johnson, I think I can help my team by playing. That's the way his dad brought him up, right? You're there for your team. You go out and play. We so, had yeah. we had Tim Kirchin on, and he just was telling us a story of the competitive nature of Cal. He said it's the most competitive baseball player he's ever been around. Yeah, so. and Tim, Tim chronicled it well, and, and, and he would know. Tim's a great guy. So, no, not, nothing but respect for Cal and Cal's respect throughout baseball, right? That last All-Star game, remember when A-Rod – pushed him over to shortstop yeah. in Seattle. And then what does Cal do with the spotlight on? He hits a home run, right? He was so good when the spotlight was on. Uh, well, 21-30 and 21-31, both of those nights when it was all about him. And he was he was a little embarrassed. I, th I think he got it. He knew why it was about him. But he homered in both of those games with the biggest spotlight in the world on him. So After hearing you – Talk about all those guys. I don't think it's fair anymore for PJ to ask you to still rank them. I think, I think it's <laughs> so I'm not first, That's 1A, 1B. I'm not ranking them. Four Baltimore legends, right? Right. Four Baltimore legends. No, but it was awesome getting your insight. Thanks for breaking all that down for us. Um, Scott, as I mentioned, we have two final segments we do with all our guests. First is the Swift 7. We'll just give you okay. seven rapid-fire questions, and sure. then we got a trivia question for you at the end. So question number one for you, what's your favorite stadium that you've ever been to? Lambeau Field, because I grew up in it. We're about the same age. We came around the same time. It's a little older than I am, just by a couple of years. But I guess my first time there, I was like 10 years old, and I still go back and meet friends for a game every year. Guys I went to high school with, that we were going to games back there in the 60s. So that's that, that, that's my place. On the baseball side, uh, I love Camden Yards, but Fenway for its history and Wrigley Field. Those okay. Are spots. Favorite sporting event you've ever attended? I guess the Super Bowl because what it what it means, right? What it means yeah. to the game and and in, in Super Bowl thirty five, calling that one with the Ravens in it and winning their first Super Bowl. Uh, I, I I'd have to put that that at the top of the list. Uh, favorite TV show. Favorite TV show? I'm, I'm kind of a news junkie. Okay. So I will go with news, local and national. Uh, yeah, I'm, I work nights for like 40-some years. So when everybody was uh, back in the day, who shot JR? I was saying, who is JR? And people were talking about Seinfeld, and I knew nothing about it. So, yeah, my, my TV is a little bit limited. <laughs> All good. Um, who's the coolest person that you've ever gotten an interview Muhammad Ali, I think. Yeah. Wow. That's I, a great I, spent, one. I spent like two days with him in Cholo, Arizona. He was training for a Ken Norton fight up in the mountains in this far away kind of, they thought it would be a good place to train secluded. And for whatever reason, I went through a channel. I'd just taken a job in Albuquerque. I went through a channel trying to get, trying to get in there. And there was a guy named Pat Patterson that handled a lot of his stuff. And he kind of he kind of just opened the door for me a little bit. And then I showed up, I was 29 years old and Ali must've looked at me and said, this kid looks pretty innocent. I don't think he's going to harm me. And he just kind of took me in for two days. I'm laying on the bed with him talking, uh, you know, get up in the morning with him when he brushed his teeth and it really spent like two days with him and did a, like a week long series inside the life of the champ. And it was, it was phenomenal. He, he, he was terrific. So that, that really stands out for me. All right, that's that's something that I didn't think we were gonna get out of this one. That's a really <laughs> random connection there, but that's yeah. awesome. Um, favorite athlete growing up, even going back to your to your time at Lambeau, maybe. 
Yeah, um, two guys, I would say, as a kid, my team was the Milwaukee Braves before they went to Atlanta. And he, he wasn't the guy he is now, but Hank Aaron was my guy. Mm-hmm. And he, he wasn't, I mean, he was an all-star player at that point, but he was in the middle of his career when I was probably not. And I try, I try to run like him. I try to, you know, my stance, I'd mock him a little bit. And I, I, I loved Hank Aaron. My cousin who was also a Brave fan. He liked Eddie Matthews, their Hall of Fame third baseman. But Hank Aaron was my guy. I remember sending a letter to him when I was like 10 years old. So he was my guy there. On, on the football side, I was a big Packer fan. So that was, those were the Lombardi years when they were winning all those championships. So Bart Starr was special. And then Ray Nitschke, who I got to be friends with later in life, um, he, he was my guy because Ray was that guy with two front teeth out when he played and just knocking people around like Ray Lewis. He didn't have Ray's speed, but he was, you know, Hall, Hall of Fame middle linebacker back in the day when everybody played that 4-3 defense and that middle linebacker. He was usually your guy, the Dick Butkuses and uh, Ray Nitschke's and Joe Schmitz. Uh, it seemed like everybody had kind of a Hall of Fame Pro Bowl middle linebacker back then. Uh, now, this one might be a tough one. Maybe we should have asked it instead of – as an actual question, instead of in the Swift Seven, you might not be able to give a quick answer. But which Super Bowl do you feel that the that you and the city appreciated more for the Ravens? To, to me, it was the first one because I was closer to the team. I, you know, I was doing the games. I'm traveling with the teams. We're in the same hotels, and I was along for the whole ride. Now I was in New Orleans, and that one was great. But I think there's something special. What, what I equated to was. By the, by the time the Ravens won the second one, the franchise was established. The, the, the fan base was here. After remember, in 2000, they had never had a winning season. They hadn't had a winning season yet. And people my age or around my age were skeptical about this team because they were Colt fans. And these guys didn't have horseshoes on the helmet. A lot of the older fans didn't like the way Baltimore got the team because we kind of got the team the way we lost the Colts. And I think a lot of people were kind of skeptical. And then – these are supposed to be quick answers. Sorry. But then, but then uh, you know, Tom Matty, former Colt, was doing the games with me. Johnny Unitas used to stand down on the sidelines and cheer him on, and Lenny Moore was involved. So I think a lot of people said, well, you know what? If the old Colts like these guys, maybe I can. And then that year came out of nowhere where they just started rolling. And then each playoff week, more and more kids were wearing purple to school, and you'd see the Raven flags on the beltway on cars and the whole city really turned purple. And to me, it was not only a turning point for the team, but for the fan base that they were accepted. This was suddenly Baltimore's team. And like I said, that was my fault. I, we, we probably should have asked that one as a regular question, <laughs> not a swift question. Uh, last one, favorite city to visit on the road? Ooh, road cities. Oh, football, base. I, I love Chicago. I love Chicago. And when I did Oriole baseball, Summers in Chicago were fantastic. You got a night game and we'd stay right over on Michigan Avenue and the lake is there and jog along the lake. And uh, I love Chicago. Now, when you go in November, December for a Raven game, (laughs) a little different story. You get a taste of winter. But I grew up in northern Michigan. That doesn't bother me. So, yeah, I love Chicago. And I I told you Wrigley Field's one of my favorite places of all time. So I love to Chicago. There's your Swift 7. And now the trivia question that PJTs, and I'll be honest here, I know we've had a little, a little stretch where our, our guests have struggled with the trivia. And I guess maybe because PJ's a Baltimore guy, a Ravens guy, an O's guy, I think he lobbed you a softball here, personally. personally <laughs> I hope um, so. I might um, have a chance then. So, so we've got 
We do this with all our guests. Now, Kirkjian got his wrong all the way back in our first episode. So if you get it right, you can hold it over him if you want to. Kirkjian got it wrong. Uh, I'm not getting it right because Tim knows you, it all. I'm telling you, I think he, I think he, he allowed you a softball here. So he's going to put 90 seconds on the clock, yep. and he gets three strikes. Okay. As soon as you're ready, he'll start the clock. Six Orioles pitchers have made the All-Star game since 2010. Can you give us five of the six? Wow, since 2010. John Means, we got That's him. It. Yep. Uh, did Rodrigo Lopez get there? He did not. No. Uh oh, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. <laughs> 2010. No, no, no. 2010 to 2019. This entire decade. Okay, the, the, the whole decade. They haven't <laughs> had much pitching in this decade. That's the tough part. Uh, There's six of them. Really? Well, some of them are relief pitchers, I guess. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let's let, let's see. We got Zach Britton. That's two. Yeah, uh, Darren O'Day. Did he get that's three? That's three. Okay. You're 40 seconds, so you got 50 left. Plenty of time. You need two uh, more. Uh, trying to think rotation. They they were kind of wanting there. Are they? St we got starters. Uh, one starter, two relievers that you're missing. Two more relievers. Gosh, I'm not going to get there. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> Who else closed? Uh, oh, who was the guy from Seattle that wore the crooked hat that closed? It Is wasn't – are you thinking of Rodney, Fernando Rodney? No, no, not Rodney. Uh, no, he came over in a trade. He, he had one good year closing, but I don't think he made the all-star team. Uh, Brad Brock? Yes. Four. Brad you, Brock need, you need one more. You got, uh -oh. uh, you got 15 seconds left. Tick, tick, tick. <laughs> it's a starter. Oh, gosh. Starting pitching does, doesn't jump out at me. Five seconds. Bud Norris never made it. Not Bud <laughs> Norris, no. Nope. So the two you missed, I don't know if this was the guy you were talking about. It was Jim Johnson back in 2020. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think of him. Yeah, he had a couple good years that went to the Braves. He did. He made it in 2012. And then the starter in 2013 was Chris Tillman who made it. Uh, Tilly, okay. I never remembered him making the All-Star team. Good. Kelly, we're right there. George Sherrill, was that the guy? George Sherrill, that's who I was thinking of. Okay. Yeah. He was 2008 or 9, I believe. Okay. He didn't make it. So he but he did get there, right? He yeah. did get there. He just missed it. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles' bullpen, you forget how good they were. For yeah. That. yeah. Well, that was the key. Their starting pitching at best was average, but the bullpen was great, and they hit a ton of home runs and scored runs. That was the recipe. Yep, definitely. I, I mean, you got to go back a ways until you said pitch, starting pitching dominated, <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Scott, we appreciate you taking some time on your off day to talk to us. It was a Good lot of fun. DJ Joe. Yeah. Thank you so much. You and so have much. a great rest of the year calling Thank those you. games and stay safe. Most Thanks, importantly, stay you safe, too. stay healthy. Thank you. Once again, that was Scott Garceau calling the Orioles games on TV. And you can also catch him on the radio in the Baltimore area. Joe, so great to talk to him, obviously for me. I mean, not trying to be biased or anything. <laughs> One of my favorite guests anytime I get to talk O's and Ravens. But it was funny how we were talking about the MLB possibly doing a playoff bubble. He mentioned that. And then sure enough, we hear that guys reporting it, that they might be exploring that option. And I think it's definitely worth exploring. Has to be. The NHL has had such success. The NBA, too, has had such success at limiting the coronavirus. Even the MLS, too. The MLS got through it, too. Right. The MLS got through it. And WNBA's bubble working. 
All the bubbles are working. All the bubbles are working. And once you get to the playoffs, you're going to have 16 teams. So I'm with you. I think you play the games in either L.A. or Chicago or New York, one of those cities where they have an, N- an NL and an AL ballpark. And, you know, you kind of do it as hockey's doing, where you play a game maybe at 10 in the morning or, you know, four in the afternoon and then eight at night and see how that goes. I'm just spitballing here. But I know, that's, that's interesting what like you mean that. about the – I didn't think about that with the AL-NL ballpark, but that would yield itself really well to, like you said, um, any of those cities – uh it's it's interesting though the only problem with with the MLB is you, you like you said you kind of have to do everything in one bubble like the NBA you can't do it in two separate bubbles like the NHL because you're going to very quickly then need to move from one bubble to the other because you're going to have a three game series in the first round a five game series in the second round and then in the CS, you got a seven-game series, and boom, you're at the World Series. So within three to four weeks, really, you're going to be up against the World Series. So then you got the whole logistical question of, well, if you have two separate bubbles, uh, which team is having to then travel to the other bubble to play the World Series? And what's the health protocol going to be? Will they have to quarantine when they get there? Is it just going to be like a road trip like now? So right. there's a lot more moving parts to having multiple bubbles where they'd probably have to do it as one bubble like the NBA, which, again, like you said, uh, yields itself to a city where there is a ballpark in the AL and NL. You can just have one playoff in one place and one in the other place. Um, I would probably, because I'm biased, preference New York for that one because you get Yankee Stadium and you get City Field. That's, that's, right. uh, that's a nice combo I mean, from there. a proximity I mean, standpoint, I, off the top of my head, I think those and maybe like San Francisco and Oakland are probably the two. Yeah, and you're not going to Oakland. Right. <laughs> that is so, the worst stadium in the MLB. Exactly. So, not happening. so we'll see what happens. But it was just funny how he brought that up. And then we saw that in the headlines the other day. Um, and it's crazy. We talked about the 60-game season, how that's going to be such a sprint and already teams are – Seven, sixteen, seventeen games into the season, except the Cardinals, really. Yes, who except the Cardinals might never play you know, again. You know, all the for all the the kind of disdain we heaped on the Marlins, um, I think we need to amplify that for the Cardinals because at least the Marlins got it under control. Yeah, they're back to playing and they're playing well. The Cardinals continue to just have more players test positive, and it's just getting worse and worse. Uh, not we touched on. We did a whole standings reset last week, so don't want to go through that whole thing again. Um, but the other thing I wanted to def- definitely mention while we were talking about LB here, what's going on with the Indians too, with Plesak and then Clevenger in a team meeting tried to lobby for keeping him in the fold because deep down he knew that he was out with him and was hoping that he didn't get found out. And then they did find it out and then they sent Clevenger into quarantine. Like how, 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 ah, I don't, I don't know, PJ. Joe, I'm so glad you brought that up because – I wanted to talk on college football just a little bit. We don't have all the facts, so we can do all the speculation we want. And Next week will probably be the big college football week. Right, and whether or not we you know, think there should be a season, whether we don't. But I'm so glad you brought up Please, Zach, because here are MLB players playing without a bubble. And we should trust professionals, right, that they should be able to have enough wherewithal and be able to understand that, by, you know, you should do whatever you can to keep yourself safe and your teammates safe by not going out when you shouldn't have to. Yes. So now 
you know, I think a big discussion that these board members are having in the NCAA is, are we really saying that we can trust college kids? And look, honestly, on the flip side of that, the, the counter argument is, could you trust college kids more because this is their ticket to maybe getting into the NFL and then uh, making all that money so they don't want to throw that shot away, but they're not getting paid. That's the yeah. biggest thing in this is you can't, you can't expect them to be in the bubble and not get paid. It's one thing for professional athletes to make that decision because it's their livelihood. It's their work. It's no different than, you know, um, barbers who want to get back to work right now, uh, deciding whether or not they want to risk going in with the mask and the plexiglass and, and whatever else they're taking as precautions in barbershops. It's no different. You are making a decision to go continue your livelihood. But for college, it's not, they are just pawns for the NCAA and these conferences. They don't get paid. So it's a totally different animal. And again, we don't want to dive too much into it. Yeah, we'll get into it next the, week. The big, the big 10, Pac-12, they're voting on things and, and which big 10 teams want to defect and play in the big 12 and the SEC as a one season only thing. So within the next week, that should resolve itself just because, I mean, shoot, you, you look to next week already and it's going to be the 21st of August. And Week zero matchups typically happen the last week of August, first week of September. So we're nearing where the normal start of college football would be. So there's not a lot of time to decide here. So we think by next week we'll be able to dive into this with a more uh, 360 full view of what exactly is going on. But right now it's just too much conjecture. The report came out on Monday, on, on Sunday, that the Big Ten was going to vote and likely vote to cancel. Then on Monday, the report came out that they voted and voted to cancel. And then on Monday night, they said, oh, sorry, that's actually not the case yet. We're still talking about it because after that vote was leaked, then Penn State, Ohio State, and Michigan came out and made a big stink about it. Nebraska, so too. In Nebraska, too. Who's Nebraska in all of this, by the way? Who's the, Nebraska, they haven't really played legitimate football since Endomican Sue was there. Right. Even then they were an afterthought. So, Nebraska, let's not put yourselves into the – same boat as those other teams just because you got Scott Frost. Do something first. I'm with you. No, but I just thought that was a great correlation because to me, there's so many things you have to factor. Obviously, the liability of if a kid gets sick, the money issue is such a big part. But to me, it's you see these MLB players who aren't cautious and don't think about, oh, if I go out, I'm, you know, how am I going to affect everybody on my team and my organization? And especially in football, Joe, it only takes one of these kids to go out, get it, bring it back in the locker room. We've exactly. seen already how it can spread like wildfire throughout all these teams. So to me, those are some of the biggest questions I'll have to answer. Like you've been saying, they have to make decisions on this pretty quickly. Very quickly. Very quickly. Yes. The thing I've last seen is that now the Pac-12 and Big 12 or Big 10 are talking about pushing this back to the end of September like the SEC is doing. It seems like now the decision that I'm thinking is circulating is to maybe just wait by themselves some more time, try and get as much answers as you, you can. You had six months, these teams, well, not six, five months for the most part. Like nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. They had all this time to put something in place and they've done nothing. You know, they absolutely wanted to cancel, but because of Trevor Lawrence tweets and because of the age we live in and social media, they're feeling into peer pressure. Hopefully, Hopefully, this starts to show just how much college athletes, specifically in football, can hold the hammer if they want to. 
and they can start pushing for actual change and better conditions for themselves. Hopefully, they look around and see just how influential Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence tweeting simultaneously was, how it's changed everything in the span of 24 hours. They can make a real push for real incredible change here right now. Right. And, and that's all something else to kind of keep in the back of your mind as this all goes forward. Uh, one place that doesn't have to worry and has been tremendously successful, as you mentioned, though, is the NBA bubble. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, everything kind of there is still kind of status quo. We're nearing the final final seeding yeah. games. But the story has been Phoenix still Ooh. undefeated. Six uh, and out. They, they needed coming in. They needed to pretty much run the table, and they're almost there. They are almost there. They are. Uh, and, and, look, good for Phoenix, man, because Devin Booker is one of those guys who's one of the best players in his sport, but because of the market he plays in, doesn't get as much national attention. And Draymond Green said to get and, out of there. <laughs> he did. And, I mean, we're all kind of thinking it because Booker yeah. deserves better. And uh, it's nice to see Phoenix win some games. The way they're going, you have to think they're going to win their next two and give themselves at least a shot at the playing game. And, Joe, the way the Lakers are looking right now, I know it's regular season, and once playoffs come, they'll turn on a different switch. But Phoenix has got to be like, look, if we, take these, a game. if we win these next two, get into the playoffs, the way we're playing, the way the Lakers are playing. They, they might take a game, and that's, and that's about it, I think. They don't, um, I'm I don't, with, think, they I don't think they'll win. More but, than a game. But it's, it's, it's nice to see Phoenix have some success. TJ Warren's been another huge story. We talked about Indiana, man, but, you know, forget this year. Next year, Joe, you got to like their pieces going forward with Oladipo, Warren, Brogdon, Turner, Sabonis. Got a nice little team there in Indiana. A lot um, of cool little fun side stories from the bubble that will not only be interesting to see how it plays out during the bubble, but then – afterwards when next season starts and they started actually something to keep way in the back of your mind because it's way far away uh they started talking about four regionalized bubbles to start next season in december so that's something to start keeping in, on the distant radar as well I've, after the title is lifted in october start thinking about that because that'll be up upon us before you know it but and that is a very sons though because devin booker did comment on, uh, on, on Kendall Jenner's uh, uh, Instagram. Strawberries. He's, he's getting in a he's little, with dangerous on a little waters. Kardashian <laughs> Jenner curse there. So you don't want to ruin that. If I'm a Sums teammate, I'm ripping that phone away from him. You don't <laughs> want any piece of that. Um, Joe, before we get into trivia, as we end with all our shows, we talked a little bit about Morikawa in the beginning. They're at the Wyndham Championship this week in Greensboro. And the hardest tournaments, honestly, to predict are the ones right after majors because the fields aren't great and the big names that are playing, you just don't know how they're going to look after a major when you invest so much into every shot and every hole and every day. And then you come to a, you know, a place like this with no disrespect to the Wyndham championship, but it's obviously not yeah. a major um, Webb Simpson, Brooks Kepka's heavy favorites. Kepka, they're the favorites. Yeah. Webb from North Carolina, you go through all the years, and Webb, I mean, he's consistently towards the top of the leaderboard. He, he loves playing here. And Kepka, I mean, when he's right, he's as good as anybody. Again, this isn't a major, 
So it, it's still interesting to see him at I the still, 11 to one threshold. And I still don't agree with him even playing this weekend. Yeah. I don't, if, I don't get if it. You, again, you mentioned how much he had to get stretched out in the golf course, take some time off, get your body right. We all know that you can flip the switch and perform at majors now, similar to how we've seen tiger kind of do that at, at times. Just, just relax. Like nobody want you, he himself always talks about how like he doesn't necessarily love golf and love the grind of it, but he's putting himself through these kind of also ran tournaments where, you it's know, not necessary. nobody really cares one way or the other. It's not necessarily good for your health. It's not going to necessarily help you for the next major. That's still a few weeks away. Play the tournament or two leading up to that. Sure. Uh, but this one, it's a week after a major. You had trouble with your line cross country. I mean, no, San Francisco, no need Greensboro. No need. I'm with it. you. Um, so who do you like this week? I, I like, you know, I, I don't want to go chocolate Webb Simpson as tempting as it is just because North Carolina and all the things you mentioned, I like the way Justin Rose looked uh, this weekend. And, and I think coming off of a major, you look to those guys who were maybe in the second tier of the leaderboard who were good, but not in the final contention and who might go ahead and, and kind of continue that momentum into this week at a, a smaller tournament. Um, good numbers too, uh, plus 2,200. The other one that I was looking at was Paul Casey. So I'm liking, I'm liking the Englishman this week. He played great last week played too. Great down the stretch, fell short to Morikawa. Uh, so I'd be on board with either of those guys. You've got Casey at 20 to 1, Rose at 22 to 1. I'll side with Rose just because – a hunch really no there's no yeah it's just kind of a coin flip between those two of being my pick this week but I'll go with Rose to me this week is a lot like the 3M open out in Minnesota I just really don't have a good yeah. feel for it you have a couple of big names hey, you there. won Morikawa this week so you don't got to prove anything to anyone <laughs> <laughs> and you know of the big names if I had to roll with the guy I think I'm leading Patrick Reed a little bit I think he, he can have a, a pretty good week but my, my winner for this week, if you guys want some good money, you know, maybe throw a couple dollars on Brant Snedeker, 50 to 1. I just mentioned Webb Simpson. You look at the past decade at this championship, he's always at the top. Brant Snedeker, I mean, always hovering around the leaderboard. He won here two years ago. That year he shot a 59 on Thursday. So he's, he's, got some, he's got some good memories of this place. He, he really hasn't been much of a factor this season. But there's something to be said when guys get on courses that they have a lot of success at, a lot of familiarity. And with not a great, great field, you definitely have some, some high-profile guys towards the top, but obviously nowhere towards a major field or anything like that. I think Snedeker could sneak up there and maybe win at 50-1. to 1. So All right. we'll see what happens. And, Joe, before we close things out, as always, trivia. I have three. I'm three for 11. You are two and a half. For 11. I believe you gave me your question first last week. You still have choice. You still have choice because you're in the league. I'll, gi- I'll give it to you first because I okay. just lo- I love my question for you. So All right. I really All right. do. Scott Garceau, we asked him about the Oriole All-Stars over the past decade. So I kind of went with a similar theme. Your question is, there are seven current MLB players that have made eight or more All-Star games. Okay, seven or more. I need you to give me five of that. Okay, seven, seven current players. Seven current players that are currently Eight playing. Or more All Star games. Correct. Appearances, not starts, just appearances. Just appearances. Yep. Got it. All right. Go ahead. All right, Albert Pujols. 
He is uh, correct. Number two at 10, apparently. Number two at 10. Interesting. I thought he might be number one. Um, I think Clayton Kershaw has done it long enough. Kershaw has eight. That is two. Okay. All right. Um, those two guys were the real kind of stuck out as gimmies. Uh, a little outside the box here. Catchers don't get the love, but uh, Yachty? Great call. I did not think you would get that, but Yachty is correct. Three? Nine. Okay. All right. All right. All right. So you are and, at uh, 35 seconds, plenty of time. Okay. You got three. Now, who was the most out of those guys? Pujols, you said? Pujols, 10. Yachty, 9. Kershaw, 8. Okay. So three of the four guys remaining have eight, and you're missing the guy who's currently playing that has the most at 11. Really? Interesting. Yes. Okay. Who am, I, who am I overlooking? 40 seconds left. Um, you need two more. No strikes. All right. Uh, I could take a couple stabs then. Madison Bumgarner? I don't think he's done Not Bumgarner. No. 30 seconds left. Okay. Um, hmm. Has, Trout hasn't had seven years, has Trout, he? Trout has, yes. Has. 15 just, seconds left. He's just barely left. there, though. 15 oh. seconds left. He is eight, so you need one more. One more. Ah, come on. Seven seconds. Four, three, two, one. What's on your mind? Oh, oh all right. All right. The, the, this is it. If, if, if I get this at the buzzer, you got to count it. it. Go ahead. It crossed my mind. This was the only other guy that came to mind. Uh, it was Cole Hamels. Not Cole Hamels. Mm, okay. All right. So, well done with Yachty. I honestly thought that was the toughest one. You got Pujols at 10, Yachty at 9, Trout and Kershaw at 8. The guy in the lead, Miguel Cabrera with 11. Oh, my God. I'm forgetting he's even still playing baseball. Right. Miggy's he's totally in, si- still in baseball on Detroit. Siberia right now with Detroit. And wouldn't you know, your guy Robbie Cano has eight. Oh, and okay. then Justin Verlander at eight. And then okay. Justin Notch under them at seven was Scherzer. Obviously, he didn't count because he didn't have eight. And Craig Kimbrell. Believe it or not, is seven all-stars. Scherzer crossed my mind. I, I knew he was close, but I didn't think he did it long enough. Um, Verlander was – he just hasn't been on my mind, but should have I should have gotten him. But just because well he hasn't done played in a few with, weeks. with Yachty. Yachty was the one. I thought you'd get Miggy and Pujols. I thought you'd get two of the guys in the eights. Um, but I didn't know if you get another guy in the eight or if you get Yachty. But I'll tell you what, Miggy was the one me. where that was – you know what? That's just totally – He's been on a god-awful team right. for three years now, and I honestly <laughs> thought he – I honestly forget that he plays still because he also – didn't he miss all of last year or the year before with an injury too, I yeah, think? Yeah, I think he did. I totally forgot he even still active and counted towards that. But that's a good question. I like that one. I thought when you said you were kind of making a question in the same vein as the one that we asked Scott, I thought you were going to ask me the same question but for the Mets All-Stars. Mm. But that one, I like this one too. Um, for yours, yes. similar to something that was asked, I think, all the way back – uh, in one of our early few episodes, um, when we were still kind of talking last dance and stuff, longest NBA title drought was the question back then. With the playoffs beginning in a couple days, I wanted to ask you the question, can you name the five, and similar to the question you asked me last week with the NHL playoff series droughts, Right. I want you to give me, uh, of the, uh, it's tough to go five out of the top five. So, of the top, I'll, I'll make it the same. It's phrased the same way you phrased yours to me. Of the top seven longest active playoff droughts, give me five of them. Gotcha. And let me get your clock set up. Yep. 
Uh, I was going to ask you to give me f- the top five, but that's so a little is, harsh. This is series, teams that have not no, won no. a series. Games. The, the five longest active droughts of even making the playoffs. Playoff appearance droughts. Gotcha. Five of the top seven, just because there's a bunch of teams bunched up, and I'm thinking to give me five. the five of the top five is kind of harsh. So five of the top seven, your time starts now. Sacramento's number one. Number one, yes. Um, let's see. I'll go the Hornets. Uh, they are one of them, correct, yes. Um, Minnesota? No. One okay. strike. Um, Phoenix? Yes. That's three. Um, let's see. More on the Eastern Conference. Um, Only 30 seconds into it. The Hawks played the Wizards a couple years ago. Grizzlies. Uh, the Grizzlies. No. Mm-hmm. All right, so I got two strikes. Um, oh, I'm sorry. They're actually tied. They're actually tied. I'll give it to you. Okay. Grizzlies count. You need one more. You got 30 seconds. One more. Um, they're actually eighth on this list, but it's a tie for seventh situation. So the Bulls? you threw me off there. The Bulls? Chicago. The Bulls. There you go. Nice. There you go. You got um, it. Let's see. I don't know if I could get the other two. I was thinking Atlanta, but it's not Atlanta, is it? So, so this is where uh, it, uh, it was a very tough question just because aside from the Suns, Kings, and Knicks, the Knicks were the third team with seven. Oh, Knicks, of course. Everyone else, for as bad as the NBA is in terms of parity at the top, where it's only a few teams at the top, Parity is actually not bad in terms of making. No, yeah. After those, it's fourteen years for the Sun, uh, for the Kings, ten for the Suns, seven for the Knicks. Then it's the Mavericks and Hornets tied at four, the Bulls, Hawks, Grizzlies tied at three, and then the T Wolves, Wizards, Pelicans, Cavs tied at two. So the bulk of the all but three teams in the league have made the playoffs in the last five years. So that's why I thought it was a tough question because you might start throwing out teams like the Wizards, like um, the Pistons and stuff, who are like kind of bad teams now um, or teams that are just in that next cut of just beyond the top eight seeds now. Right. But because there's been so many random seven or eight seeds to make the postseason, like the Nets last year making it as a, a seven seed and stuff, and as bad as the Cavs are now, they're only still two years removed from LeBron. Uh, I thought it was tough just because there's so many teams bunched up, but there you go. You're opening up a, a one and a half, uh, one and a half lead now. You're I can't believe 12. I forgot the Knicks. I mean, that's you got just... it though. You pulled it though with the three teams tied for with, with three seasons out of the postseason. There we go. There All right. Go. We're up to four. To I'm going to have to pull out a, a, a doozy for you next week. Uh, Joe, you got Lafreniere. Okay. <laughs> so I think you're doing all right today. You'll take exactly. a loss in trivia for that. Exactly. I'm happy I got Yachty at least, but Yachty was, uh, that was a great pull. I, when I thought, you know, you, you look at the questions and you like think about what I've gotten at myself and kind of how you just forgot about Miggy Yachty. I just, obviously he's a hall of famer and you know, you, you remember, you know him, but you just don't think of him for a question like that. So very nice. Well, thanks again to Scott Garceau for joining us. It was great talking to him. Joe Smorgasbord today of an episode, a little bit everything. A lot of things going on. A lot of things going on. Everybody enjoy the playoff hockey that starts 
today as we record this on Tuesday, but as you listen to this on Thursday, everybody will have at least game one finish with. Yep. That's what's beautiful. Four games every Every day. Every day, PJ. That's fantastic. (laughs) Baseball keeps going along. NBA keeps going along. So a lot of good stuff. And then, Joe, probably next time we – sit down and record this. We'll have an answer regarding college football. So we'll yes, see we will. Happens. And actually it's a, this is such a bombshell to leave the podcast within the last 30 seconds. But while we're recording this, the big 10 officially, officially voted to push uh, their season to the spring, which is, wow. and, and that is, again, everything is just so fluid because uh, they've, the, the vote leaked out the other day that they were going to cancel it outright. Now it leaks out that they're pushing to the spring and it says they're going to try wow. to play in the spring. So, wow. so who knows? And, and again, that doesn't, as far as the reason we stayed away from it, because that, that could change again, the way that could change oh again. And yeah. that doesn't, that doesn't prohibit, that doesn't prohibit Michigan, Ohio state, uh, Nebraska from playing in a different conference in the fall and also playing in the spring for all we know. So who no knows? doubt, no question. Figure that out next week. We'll Come figure it out next week, week for episode 13 for Joe Malfon on PJ Glasser. Three months, Joe, in the books. We did it. All done. We did it. See you next time.